are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. In the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Karen Ulrich, who is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. Her research focuses on the intersection of information theory and probabilistic machine learning and deep learning. Karen's PhD thesis is titled A Coding Perspective on Deep Latent Variable Models, which she completed in 2020 at the University of Amsterdam. We start by discussing her interest in information theory and the minimum description length principle that underlies many ideas in the thesis. We talk about her work on compressing neural networks using ideas which connect compression and Bayesian inference and the challenges that come up in the real world. Then we talk about Karen's work on communication, which used deep latent variable models for applications in electron microscopy and accounting for channels that are noisy and bandwidth limited a problem that often arises right when we have an important meeting over a home Wi-Fi connection. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Karen Ulrich with a coding perspective on deep latent variable models on the thesis review. Yeah, so I guess we could start with uh, a fun philosophical question. <laughs> So in your thesis, you look into compression, uh, things related to information theory, and there's this connection between compression and intelligence that some people talk about. Like I was listening to this talk with uh, Jürgen Schmidhuber, mm-hmm. and he kind of had me convinced that like all of science is compression, that you know we find these different equations that kind of describe really complex things in more compact ways. And of course, that's like a really high level thing. So just in general, like, do you think about this connection between compression and intelligence? Yeah, I mean, I do see myself confronted a lot, especially with the uh, Coxi uh, community. And of course, like a lot of the idea, I mean, Jeffrey Hinton, for example, or also Jürgen Schmidhuber, Jan LeCun, like sort of all of this early um, AI research, um, they applied a lot of information theory and compression ideas, but actually to address questions in um, cognitive science about intelligence. Um, But I would argue that that view on, uh, you know, uh, compression and intelligence, sort of saying that what the brain does is compression, that that is very restrictive in a sense. Um, For one, because we know that the brain is very energy efficient. So there is obviously more happening than just compression. So there's sort of more than to the loss function, if you will, than just compression, I would say. And then, okay, so there's also this recent obsession that I have with uh, PBS's uh, Eon's show. That's sort of a show about uh, evolution and, you know. Uh, how things mm-hmm. have evolved and also from there you just see how many redundant parts there are in beings and i just assume that also in our brain there's a lot of redundancy so i do not think that the brain is a perfect compressor and actually we can do better and on top of that i think there is a big distinction to be made between the brain as sort of one system that computes as opposed to a computer that another system that computes and i think taking the system that computes into account is probably um a big a big factor in that right yeah um and there is where it like splits like right now i really see how that splits where 
I don't like in in what is now published in compression research. I don't think there has is much room for cognitive science, or like this has to be its own entity. Yeah, that makes sense. So potentially, like the links to cognitive science aren't the strongest. I think like one reading through your thesis, um, like one nice connection is to make this connection with the generative models. If having a better compressor gives you some notion of intelligence, then having a better generative model can then be used with this like arithmetic coding. So there's at least a, a weak link between like making a better generative model and making something which is in some sense more intelligent, even if it's like a restrictive idea. Yeah, for sure. But I do think that in intelligence, there's also, there's opposing ideas, right? So I th we also think of intelligence as a system that's able to disentangle, right? Mm. Uh, factors of variation. But I would say that disentanglement and compression, they can actually be opposing objectives. And you can like, so assume that two factors uh, are in some way correlated. So there is a joint likelihood. So if you uh, if you disentangle them, nonetheless, you will store redundant information, and that then is opposed to the compression objective. So mm -hmm. I see. Like I I just think compression is only one aspect, and yeah. it opposes to other notions that we have about uh, intelligence. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's a good point about the disentanglement. I guess you would have to have some task that would justify doing the disentanglement but then like you're saying the information if you just look at the information itself then it's redundant so that wouldn't fall out of pure compression if, if the factors that you want to disentangle have any correlation then that opposes your compression objective i would say right so like when you were getting started what kind of motivated you to look into to start to get interested in, in like machine learning information theory was it like these higher level type questions or was it like the mathematics of it mm, i think relatively early on i listened and or read david mckay's book uh, which i still think is just a great source and i mean i don't know somebody who has this like enormous work uh, that i find very inspiring and i just find it uh, to think of compression is at the same time abstract as well as very practical and i i like that somehow that really sort of meets uh, the way I think about problems. And it's it's super easy to to get stuck in this mode to actually just push every problem you see into some sort of communication problem. Yeah, I've looked through <clears throat> different parts of that book myself. It's really nice because it, like, it focuses not just on the pure, like, cold mathematics, but, like, a lot on the intuition and trying to show, like, concrete examples. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't like, I mean, I can't speak for him, um, but so the feeling or what that book means to me, let's say that, <laughs> is it sort of, it illustrates this bridge between machine learning and information theory. And I think he talks himself in somewhere in the introduction about how the information theory and machine learning is always two sides of the same coin. And I'm, I mean, often when I think about problems, I'm trying to think what are the two sides of this coin now in either terms and i think that's sort of motivation for a lot of work yeah yeah did you ever read through this there's this other famous textbook by uh, cover and thomas and that one seems more mathematical less on maybe the the intuitions and things like that you have to like find them for yourself while working through the mathematics yeah did, did you ever read through that book and have any thoughts about it yeah, so I actually started out with a different information theory book for some reason, because I, I guess because I didn't know um, the standard literature. And then I read uh, Thomas and Cover right after, and I just like, I actually found that to be written so well in terms of really, uh, mm, it's it's very illustrative. And I actually thought it was, it was le less mathematical than other information theory books or introductory oh, information theory books that you find. So that's why I'm not really sure I agree on this, but it's definitely like a book I would recommend to start. And I don't know, I, I like definitely have studied that very intensely as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so was this kind of before your PhD and then you decided to 
do you have a PhD to explore these ideas further or? No. Oh, I mean, okay. So I had, so I'm actually coming from a, from a physics background and had planned on pursuing a career, if you will say in molecular system simulation. So I wasn't really, I'm not really the kind of physicist that wants to, you know, go to Mars and is very interested in space. Um, but more the kind that's interested in this this intersection of chemistry and biology and physics, and I still am in some extent. But the sort of the molecular um, simulation uh, sciences at the time when I would have entered were really far developed, and I just didn't think it was so fun to add yet another random generator in the field. Um, which is like something they were really interested in is making random generators that make the best random numbers just because you need so many random numbers to have these large-scale um, uh, simulations. Mm. Um, and then at the time, I so, that, so when, I, when I started transferring to machine learning from that sort of physics field, that was in 2012, so that was a bit pre-hype, I think. Um, and what really got me motivated were I think these initial um I think I just took an initial course in machine learning and I thought that was like a really um interesting field to discover because there was um so one thing in physics is always we make a lot of assumptions to make the world a lot easier and then we can solve problems but they they don't really uh, mean anything uh and machine learning, you almost have the opposite. Like you take the world as it is and then you see what you can do with that. And I thought that was sort of a very like refreshing approach. And I thought that was very exciting, even though you lose all the the guarantees of, um, well, that you would have in this sort of physics setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that you've gone more in depth with machine learning and done this PhD, do you maybe have a different perspective on physics that you might like go back to it and use some of the things you've learned in machine learning or do you still view this uh ha have this like distinction between the two fields and prefer to be in machine learning no I, I wouldn't say there is necessarily a distinction but it's sort of okay i used to learn a certain approach to approaching problems and then machine learning gave me a second tool of approaching problems and i think mm -hmm. There's also a middle ground and you can mix them and that's cool. And there is, so I think, okay, so one um, set of problems I think is interesting to look at now with machine learning tools is, and it is also related to communication, is that a lot of the communication um, that we're doing is, of course, via electromagnetic waves. So a lot of um, information theory is about how can we um, reduce Maxwell equations to, you know, any kind of simplification so we can actually use this in, in any real systems. Um, and that sort of communicating of computers is or, you know, phones or whatever we want to describe with that. But there is, of course, another world of communication that's sort of more in this biological realm where mm. we have like cell communication and the way they communicate is very similar actually to... Um, phones or computers communicating through the internet is they use, but they use the fusion processes. And so there is different kinds of uh, differential equations to be reduced and solved. And I think um, nowadays we could do, or we can solve these much more easily with machine learning tools, as opposed to spending another 30 years uh, and very smart mathematician on reducing yet another set of differential equations. So I think maybe we can speed up this process of, simplifying um, communication processes. So I think there AI seems to provide a shortcut to solving these kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We can start going through the thesis then. So some of these communication uh, issues of communication you looked into in the thesis. And so there's a really nice, nice introduction for anyone who's listening that goes through kind of the details of the information theory that's used in the thesis. Uh, and then it's kind of divided into two high level sections. So on compression um, and then on communication. Maybe to start, like, could you just provide some 
some key background points about, you know, what is information theory and how it relates to machine learning. Or maybe you use this principle called the minimum description length a lot. So maybe it'd be helpful just for people uh, who maybe aren't familiar, just to introduce that at a high level. Um, minimum description length principle is actually sort of a concrete formulation of something that I guess most of the listeners will have heard of. That's uh, Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying to choose from all the hypotheses um, that might suit our needs. We want to choose the the simplest. And uh, in the minimum description length uh, principle, the formulation is a bit different. Um, so we send. Uh, we are we're thinking about um, a sender and a receiver or communication game where. Um, the sender wants to send the data. Um, and so we, we could use a model to to describe that data. But if we want to do that, we actually have to send the model as well. So we want to, we have to account for um, the, the model complexity or like the cost of sending the model, as well as the cost of sending the data misfit. And that data misfit is basically where your model gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and now, so so one of the original formulations of that was to say, hey, like, let's write a program, right? And like, let the program print the data. Um, and then um, we just count literally the number of bits or whatever that this program takes on, on our hard drive. And that will determine the, you know, how, how well our problem is solved by this particular hypothesis. That is our model. Mm -hmm. So in that way, like the minimum description length principle is an is an information theoretic way uh, of approaching generalization in machine learning. Uh -huh. so. And then one of the the cool things that you highlight is the connection then with um, kind of Bayesian inference that you can have this Bayesian code, and you even mentioned that like you could derive this Bayesian inference from different axioms that have to do with. Uh, like optimal decision-making, or you could kind of take this coding view. So that was a really cool connection. Yeah, I think, so one thing that's, that, that should be noted about the minimum description length principle is that it is an approach um, of, or it's mostly used to choose best hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the, in the, in the Bayesian view, uh, what we can show is that the the theoretical length will be better than in the in the two part view. Um, mm -hmm. So the two part view is the one where we say, okay, we literally send the model, and um, then we send data misfit, right? And because I described a process to you, I can actually write you an encoder and a decoder for that process, um, and then. For the for the Bayesian view, but there is no obvious encoder and decoder, and that's actually something I tried to bridge in these, and it's also something that inspired the work that I did right after is saying, hey, we we have these uh, inference mechanisms in this case Bayesian inference that we know should guarantee a better hypothesis mm -hmm. um, according to the minimum description length principle, but we don't actually know how we would structure an encoder and a decoder to get there. Um, and I think that's sort of some of the of the of the missing pieces that I'm trying to at least now fit uh, in the literature. So then, with this kind of background, I guess the first thing that you looked into was this issue of compression and compressing different networks. Could you just talk through like how you got interested in this problem, and then what is the connection between uh, you know things that we just talked about and then compressing a network? So compressing a network um, would mean that I compress my hypotheses and it means that sort of the description length for my hypotheses is smaller, right? So and that would sort of boost that specific network um, in this decision tree of which hypotheses am I going to choose to describe my data. And mm -hmm. I think it's, one underlying problem is essentially how do we even account for um, complexity, right? So in that particular case, we chose a very practical um, 
way of counting and where we how we counted was we literally counted the the number of weights or the number of bits um, for all the weights in the neural network and we determined that to be the function complexity which is of course a choice and you know you, you could do this in any different way mm -hmm. um and i think at the time and there was also uh, there was also an issue of course this is interesting by itself if we talk about you know what uh, hypothesis should you choose but there's also at the time when we when we did the study there was just this enormous need for having smaller models that are more energy efficient and um, that would actually run on a grad school student computer um, mm -hmm. so that's sort of why I looked at at it but the way I looked at it came more from the sort of the information theoretic perspective but I want to say that sort of this that like both studies that are in this thesis they are kind of ancient history right now and I think few people approach uh, neural network compression now with um, Bayesian methods or at least not the way um, I did that back then oh interesting what would be the key idea behind how people are doing it now I think so the the essential problem in the, in both of the studies um, is a bit is a bit tricky um, in the in the optimization so you it, it's not a very stable process i think and it's sort of once you have a a, a certain weight on its way out of the hypothesis um, it's hard to stop the optimizer trying to kick it out um, mm. so it sort of often could lead to over pruning in either of these and i think that has much to do with sort of how um how we optimize parameterized posteriors essentially um and i think today i mean like all of the advancements i think have much to do with um smarter optimization in the end of the day um but there's there's i mean there's a few um so if i'm not like malinformed about this so so the so one of the best methods right now or like the, what the entire field has already been moving to is sort of looking at um the precision um and the values of uh weights but also of activations and then sort of this jointly now um determines the energy uh, consumption or like in the entire field I would say moved much more towards focusing on energy consumption and in these studies we looked more into into purely compression but I like I don't believe that this is the the main issue anymore so so back in the in the day compression was an okay proxy for energy consumption but actually the, with the devil in the details nowadays people focus more on the actual energy consumption at the time, like the was taking this Bayesian view of the compression kind of like a new a new thing, or I mean, quite literally not. So I think the the first study that's or it's the second study that's in there, the software sharing. I think that was that the paper. I I literally just reproduced a paper that was twenty five years old, uh, and it had maybe twenty citations, and mm. that actually came from the cognitive science space. Uh, and then, so the idea was, you know, by binding neurons, um, you achieve greater generalization mm -hmm. um, for models. And I think it was um, originally the idea was to oppose or improve uh, the first convolutional neural networks, um, which um, famously did not work out. So, um, but we revived the the principled idea of binding certain groups together um because there was a natural um counterpart in in sort of network architecture is you can imagine that um quite similarly to uh, what vqvaes propose today so have sort of a lookup book um and each weight um in in your layer or in your network um is assigned to one uh, cluster that then belongs to one value in this lookup book. So there's not very many values to choose from. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the principled idea and sort of the way we formulate it is, is then how can we learn this essentially. 
Yeah, I see. So that would be the soft weight sharing yeah, uh, section. Yeah. Yeah. So then you formulate it there with this Dirac posterior, I guess that right. chooses one cluster in this mixture, right? Yeah. We had the sort of the, the alternative idea, which is then, you know, like it also like relates to different implementation that you can do on a chip is you say, okay, how about we choose a different precision for, I think, each layer of the neural network. So that also is sort of relating to what could possibly be happening on a chip because each weight would not be very realistic, mm -hmm. um, but for an entire layer. So for one entire matrix, you can think of that having its own precision, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and then we said, okay, how can we learn the precision? So if we now use sort of um, a, a distribution to represent any weight, um, and that distribute when we learn this distribution, uh, turns out to have a very large variance. Um, it's likely that this variance, like a large variance, means that this way doesn't have any actual meaning. So we can just sort of throw it out. Mm -hmm. um, or, um, you know, um, from that variance can determine the, the precision that a weight should have, uh, or like an entire layer. And you can also mix both approaches if you want. So we have like a little follow-up story. Uh, yeah, little follow-up um, publication where we basically replaced the Dirac posteriors that we used in the in the software sharing study um, with the with the Gaussian posteriors, and then it you know worked even better in terms of compression. But that follow-up study doesn't actually relate to any um, any new architecture. So like basically you still have the two architecture and then if you will, you can look at the follow-up study as to improve on the um, on the lookup table cluster implementation version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then like at a high level, um, so when I'm using a neural network library, there's kind of two options, at least the ones I'm using. You could have floating point 16, you could have floating point 32. And from what I understand, this is doing something more fine-grained, right? You're saying that you choose the precision of each weight, or are these two different, are these two different ideas? No, they, they, they are not. So, um, so in this space of developing the actual chip, so what we did back then, we also just, you know, worked on, on regular graphics cards back then. And so mm -hmm. all the computations are, that are in there, in the papers, they're very theoretical in the sense of what could you achieve? So the way we practically did this is we said, okay, let's, um, prune the weights, even though we practically use like 32 or 16 bit precision, let's prune them as if they were at fewer precisions. Um, and one of the big players in that field was actually NVIDIA who were very early on, uh, counting on these low precision graphics cards and have been working intensely in that field. And I think, so they were, so NVIDIA, I think, has invested heavily in low precision architectures. And I think Bosch and Qualcomm, they are a bit more on the side of um, the, the lookup tables, um, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, but for both um, ideas um, or like for both architectures, there are sort of uh, companies that actually stand behind possibly making these chips. And I think one of the ways this is implemented right now is actually the, to reformulate the layers um, to um, where the multiplication actually ends up being integer precision. And then you can actually tune the integers very finely, mm. uh, the integer precision, because um, defining sort of other than or like lower than 16 bit floating point formats is kind of like a very debatable issue um, mm -hmm. of how to do that. So it ends up being smarter if one does this in in uh, yeah an integer space. Yeah, but yeah, potentially, I guess looking forward in the future, we might see more nuanced use of precision in the in the libraries. Like you're saying, I I guess they're looking into designing this into the chip. Yeah, Is I think they so. I think there's, it's going to be algorithmically at, as well as on chip. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and algorithmically, you may, I mean, you probably never going to observe this, but sort of what's going to happen under the hood is that um, like a, an MLP layer might end up doing like an integer operation um, and then appear to you as though it would be floating point. But the actual operation is going to be in integers and maybe lower precision. I don't Yeah, yeah. And then just a higher level question. So like in this first section on the Bayesian compression, um, I think one of the motivations you said was to approximate this Bayesian code. So like when you write down the Bayesian code, it's this nice formula. But then when you look at what it's doing, it's doing this really expensive uh, summation. Mm-hmm. And it kind of raises this general question of like, maybe maybe someone listening to this is reading through an information theory textbook and they're like, oh, all these ideas make sense. I'm just going to go implement this. So maybe like taking this compression as an example, like what are the differences between a compression problem in an information theory textbook, like this Bayesian code, and then actually doing it in practice? Like what are some of the key difficulties that come up that you then have to solve in the research process mm, so i think one of the realities is that compression is not nearly as important as one might think so anything that actually runs on computers has more objectives than just compression so like i would say mm. one of the most important one is like how energy efficient is the thing that we're running so instead of having maybe um a, a trade-off between um, rate and distortion, if you will, in the future. If you like talk about Shannon, right, like rate distortion trade-off, you might actually end up with something that is rate distortion and an energy trade-off and have specific sort of um, requirements for that. Yeah, and then w- what I said earlier, so, so one of the key reasons I think... Um, AI research and compression research at this moment don't go so well together is because the devil is in the detail of on what platform are you computing. So these these details of right. like, you know, uh, how are we actually communicating uh, like on a, with bits or with, you know, uh, spikes that might actually be um, important. Yeah. And then I, I guess before we move on to the next, section on the communication another kind of just higher level thing like do you have some intuition about how these networks work or what they're learning as a result of kind of staring at these different compression problems and results for a while like for instance like to throw something out there i mean the fact that we could do compression at all and still have the network you know have roughly the same performance is maybe kind of interesting well, one one thing that I remember a study or maybe actually a series of studies I, um, that I relate to, but I'm sure there's more important uh, people, authors on that uh, comes from Sarah Hooker, who is like um, concerned with when we compress neural networks, um, what this is going to do to um, various classes like we, we, we maybe overall see only a small decrease in accuracy, um, but what's sort of the worst case loss? Um, and then what she, what she finds or what she and her collaborators find in their studies is that um, so small classes are actually hurt worse, I think. And so what, what mm. they conclude is that it sort of increases bias um, in... Uh, in classifiers so that's that's the one study that I, I relate to that yeah so it could be possible that kind of the overall accuracy metric when we're evaluating it it appears that the network's still functioning in a similar way but then what you're saying is that actually there is something going on and maybe the first thing that gets discarded is the um like the underrepresented classes that the network's modeling I mean, it's also, I mean, it's it, it's not surprising and it's actually kind of surprising in a way because if you think that compression is actually enhancing generalization, you wouldn't think that necessarily happens, but it seems to be a counter example of that. Uh-huh, yeah. 
So where actually the, your like your more complex class gives you better results than less complex class. So actually, this actually came up in an interview with um, Aaron Corville. So he discussed Occam's razor in his thesis. And we we're discussing like, is Occam's razor ever wrong? Because it's just a principle. It's not a, a theorem. Mm -hmm. So I think what you just said there is an example. <laughs> I mean, it could be, you know, the, uh, for me, like one of the big questions in the MDL formulations or in, in the way of, you know, um, how we formulate Occam's razor in this context is like, how do we even measure uh, function complexity? Mm. Um, we're kind of very um, drilled in on counting neural network weights. But of course, you know, um, there could be alternative uh, ways of of doing that. So we could also count the number of operations we need or like literally the size of the of the program or if we want to be silly even the numbers of lines it takes to code um the specific the neural network i mean uh, and i think sort of th that detail is is probably important to get right mm -hmm. let's go to the next um kind of section and it's called learning to communicate with deep latent variable models so yeah, could you just introduce this idea of the communication perspective versus what we're talking about with compression? Are these like two sides of the same coin? And then where do latent variable models come into the picture? So basically, the the problem that I'm in, in general looking at is the problem of communication where we have a sender and that sender seeks to send some sort of data. Um, and then, mm -hmm. of course... Um, you can imagine the way we can encode this data is by a latent variable model or you know any generative model. But you know at the time when I was writing it, like my thesis, there weren't that many more around. So let's say uh, it's more time uh, or uh, a historical fact that this is just about deep latent variable models. So, but like a deep latent variable model is a way of um, compressing my um my picture or you know whatever data i want to send but at the same mm -hmm. time i know i also have to send uh my compressor itself so the uh the deep latent variable model so and then i if i want to send the deep latent variable model, it will come in very handy if i can compress the model itself mm -hmm. so that's sort of how the two parts play together um and now for the deep latent variable models. Um, so what I was particularly interested in for the thesis, but I actually, so that's that second part is actually the one that I think is least worked out. Um, and also the part that I try to expand sort of after my PhD. Um, mm -hmm. But sort of for my PhD alone, I was, I was mainly looking into what are interesting decoders to look at, like of problems that uh, have great relevance um, and one of the decoders that I could come up with um, um, was um, for a problem that um, I exemplified by cryo-electron microscopy. So that would be a kind of problem where you get a lot of observations about the same object, um, but they are very noisy. So that problem is sort of similar for also like MRI studies um, where... Um, there you have sort of a person that is still, but you have a sensor that moves around. And in hindsight, you kind of want to reconstruct um, the object itself. But in so in cryo-electron microscopy, you have this additional problem that you don't know um, where your sensor has been. Mm -hmm. So you have to infer not just the object, but also the position of your sensor relative to your object. And that makes it an incredibly hard problem to solve. Um, mm -hmm. And so we were looking into specifically how to how can we make um, decoders that sort of can live or where sort of the message reconstruction itself can live with the uncertainty of the position of the sensor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how did, th this was really interesting, and it seemed like a different style maybe of research project than the rest of the thesis. 
So I was just curious, like, how did you come across this problem? And at least to me, that was like a, a bit of like a creative leap to view this electron microscopy uh, process in terms of this uh, communication process. The way I came across this is because um, at the time, uh, David Fleet, who is a professor at the University of Toronto, and Marcus Brubaker, who is one of his, or used to be one of his PhD students, but now is a professor, I think, at York University. Mm -hmm. um, they have worked on this problem for many years, and you know they just did you know tremendous way of like formulating it and like um, really um, boosting the performance of these reconstructions. And I think um, so. The research from that time is actually now leading in reconstructing proteins. Um, but one thing that the 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 methods they they used wasn't really quite capable of is dealing with um, a lack of information. So if they're so or how like in the representation of the protein itself, how can we uh, present that there is that I don't know this um, and the um, so information theory and sort of this variational model gave us it's a very natural way of representing information that we don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so that might be, so if you think about that, you know, an MRI, you may only have been hovering over half of your body. Then I cannot maybe tell you so much about certain angles, um, how you look like. And so our model would sort of allow for us to see that we don't actually know how the second half of your body looks like. And then kind of from the end user's perspective, they get some kind of uncertainty estimate for different yeah. points in the image, right? I mean, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the brutal breakdown is you basically have sort of like we would represent pixels as uh, Gaussians, I believe, with some restrictions because there are some restrictions on the uh, complex space. But let's just say like each pixel or voxel in 3D. Is, is sort of a Gaussian and you have sort of your your uh, mean um, that sort of gives you what any method would give you, sort of the best uh, estimate uh, mm -hmm. of your protein. But you would also additionally get sort of an estimate of uh, how certain are you in all areas or uh, about your estimate. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then like... It went pretty in depth. So, like, you focused on this projection slice theorem. And I guess the idea was like to come up with a way of making this whole thing differentiable. It was like a key a part of the project. Uh, and then also, mm -hmm. like, working in this Fourier domain. So, again, was this like, like, once you start working on the problem, these are kind of natural things that fall out, like these different theorems. Yeah, like, how did you stumble upon this projection slice theorem, for example, and oh, decide to like, um, focus on it? <laughs> that that was uh, honestly. So, if you if you work in this space, um, mm -hmm. I think you you got will realize that what the, the this particular study is just a really a tiny incremental block in like a very long, I don't know, twenty year history mm -hmm. uh, of reconstruction problems and. Um, the contribution that I had in this or like we made in this paper was not to uh, relate the Fourier slice theorem to the reconstruction. So the mm -hmm. entire um, idea was very well known that the usage of the Fourier slice theorem um, would enable us to compute much faster. I think that was well known, but our contribution was to... Um, make each component in our decoder actually differentiable. So that means we have to sort of differentiate through the Fourier slice theorem. Uh -huh. um, and that's sort of the, the, the main contribution, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's always, it's always cool hearing some of the backstory behind some of these things. Like I said, this seemed a bit different in the sense that it was like more applied maybe. Like, do you think that moving forward, these kind of applications um, are what motivates you more or um, it's kind of 50-50 and 
you'll include some applications in some of your future research or what's kind of your takeaway on that front? Mm, so in general, I would say that applications are something that drives my research agenda. And I mean, I, th I think having impact sh should motivate you as a researcher. Maybe if you, you know, of course, there is sort of this view of that if you're a mathematician, you're basically a type of artist and your work justifies itself. And, you know, that's a fine view, but personally, I'm more proscribed to also trying to have some impact. Um, and so I do right now focus on like true communication problems in the sense of I'm looking mainly and then that's motivated by uh, knowing that sort of the our the internet traffic is constantly evolving and growing. I think our um, video streaming um, usage has increased fifteen fold since two thousand seventeen. So the way we want to access information is just more and more demanding and i think that's just like a great um research frontier um whereas machine learning or as an ai community we can contribute a lot algorithmically and that's definitely something that drives my research right now is to sort of think about uh for example the the streaming problem or just uh problems where we create a lot of data and then we want to either store that or send that um Mm -hmm. and but there's also sort of these 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 theoretical itches that i'm trying to scratch so one of them uh, sort of led up to the the publication um that is now uh, an icml so the i think we touched up on that earlier already when i said that um, the minimum description length principle often gives you an ideal length but you don't really know how to get there so you don't really know how to construct a decoder for, let's say, the um, Bayesian uh, code. Mm -hmm. uh, but sort of this Monte Carlo uh, bits back paper gave you sort of a concrete plan as to how to do that. Uh, and I think that's sort of something that I'm also after. It's a bit twofold. And at the same time, I also have the great privilege right now to work with a lot of people. So I like there's also that much of how I can actually determine myself what I'm working on. And often um, it is determined by the, the great collaborators that I'm working with and sort of where they want to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then, so the last section in the thesis was on this bandwidth limited channel. And I think this mm -hmm. relates to a lot of the stuff you just said, where in these real communication systems, right, we have this channel, and it's limited and noisy. Let me know if I'm describing this incorrectly. But then here you're actually kind of looking into modeling this. Um, and you said that kind of if you look at, again, like if you look at the textbook, the textbook would say to model the source and the channel or to do source and channel coding separately. And then the key idea here was that you're doing it jointly. Is that kind of the key idea? And again, like how did... Yeah, how did you kind of decide to start looking into this? So, yeah, there's sort of multiple, I think, contributions in, in that paper. Um, so, yeah, so I think the key question is um, if, let's say, we're, we're wanting to transmit data on our phones or whatever, where we may have a limited bandwidth, mm -hmm. um, um, how can we best deal with with the fact that you know there might be scenarios where we can not transmit all the information that we want to and so the the first idea is what you just said so we we looked into ways of how can we transmit as much information as possible so don't leave anything on the table and one of the ideas and again we didn't come up with this it's well known that in in certain scenarios joint coding is better than separate coding mm. but at the same time, there was, are not really a lot of studies on this, especially not in the AI field. So we just try to um, sort of contribute sort of to that uh, idea. 
and showed, okay, you, you leave the least information on the table if you, um, if you don't start separating uh, the fact that you want to compress your information as much as possible, but then you also want to introduce some redundancy in order to account uh, for the inevitable loss of information because we want to send information through a channel and that channel is going to be some physical process uh, like uh, sending information through um, uh, a data line and that may be the internet or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you don't distinguish between these two processes, um, you will actually end up with the most information uh, at the receiver side at the end of the day. So that was one contribution. Mm -hmm. um, and another contribution um, was to look at, you know, once we are at this point now, you know, maybe there was a situation where I had very little bandwidth, so there was very little information transmitted. Um, but how can we make the best out of this? Um, and so we proposed to sort of have this modeled explicitly um, again, by a, a latent variable model, or you could also have used again or whatever to sort of improve the the quality of your data point to actually match uh, a data point or like match the distribution of plausible data points, let's say. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that you never end up with one of these very like chunky pictures, but it would also always refine this to a point where this would be a plausible picture. Um, to you so what you're looking at is sort of visually pleasing but i think that's funny enough so there, there's also a lot of studies that came around the same time or like a year or two after that sort of came with very similar ideas but i think one of this these these problems that this is opening up to is that now we're having visually pleasing pictures but actually the information in those pictures might be very limited and so as a user i'm asking myself what in this picture can i trust so we have to really think about how to evaluate pictures now or like whatever, any any data that is being sent. But so we don't have sort of this visual way of checking anymore um, how much I can trust the information that I see. I see. Um, could, could you explain a bit more about like what it means to not trust the picture? So I guess you're saying that like the goal is not just to have a visually pleasing picture. It might be like a complex scene and it might discard some elements of the scene. Is that the idea? Or? Yeah, the, so the I think... Um, so what you would get, for example, is is a scene... I think they, they, they compressed one of the car data sets in one of the studies. And the, the uh, picture would be at very low resolution you couldn't really see the the color of um, other vehicles that are around you mm. uh, per se, or like the vehicle itself. But then if you now take this low resolution picture and you give it to again, or, you know, model it, uh, remodel it with a denoising variation autoencoder or anything like that, mm. uh, what you end up is you end, end up with a very crisp picture that is very believable. But if you now, so it might be now a red Ferrari in the in one corner. But if you now put that next to the actual original image, you will see that wow, that was actually I don't know a black BMW or I don't know. Um, Interesting. <laughs> and it ends up that you know, like depending on what you when you see what the objective also of the user is that looks at this, right? Um, that could end up with you you know, getting a different sense of reality than another person that looks at a different reconstruction. So you basically, any user um, for different bandwidth of communication will look at a different reality. Mm -hmm. um, and I see, see that a bit of a problem. Um, and I think one of the, the this, or two of the studies that are to be mentioned in this context, relatively recent uh, studies are from NVIDIA and uh, fair and they look at um, how can we improve uh, video streaming um, from people to people um, and essentially the rate is so the kind of information that they're sending is very much determined by just uh, 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 facial key points 
uh, of of persons and then they leave the sort of the background and all of this they assume that to be relatively static mm -hmm. um and then they reconstruct your face based just on the key points and that's super interesting because there's really very 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 few informations that that you actually transmit um so you you gotta wonder how much of this is all true uh at any given point mm. in time i mean i want to also emphasize that those were both like very good studies and you know um i think in the nvidia that was a model uh, the, there was an advertisement video that was going around on twitter where they also showed you know in very many different conditions you know if i wear glasses or piercings or tattoos or you know have a different colors of skin that like the reconstructions are faithful but those examples at the end of the day they are just you know they are just like what six data points but there is no like metric i can assign to say like how truthful is this reconstruction actually yeah 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 so then eval evaluating this in an automatic way which then mm -hmm. drives progress is really starting to be a key difficulty because these are really nuanced mm -hmm. things or they kind of require intelligence to evaluate yeah similar issues come up in in tech systems right where they're hallucinating different facts And then it actually, you're like, wait, that doesn't sound correct. And you actually have to like do a Google search to look it up. And the sentence sounds really convincing. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think this, um, I, I saw like you presented this work at ICLR recently. So this was kind of fairly recent. And then you, you mentioned this Monte Carlo bits back coding. Um, just like as we get towards the end, maybe, um, is there anything else that you want to highlight in terms of where you see your research going? I mean, like, do you see this kind of PhD work as, as really still like the anchor point and you're kind of working out from it or have you like started a, a new direction? So I would, I, I think there is more directions that I'm now adding to the work that I did in my PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, but That specific, so that specific um, paper that you just mentioned um, was really sort of coming out of my PhD and wanting to work more on realizing um, specific codes that support sort of this generalization hypothesis that is um, the Bayesian code in a, a minimum description length principle, or in other ways, adding a coding scheme to an inference method. You know, I think that's more or less the same uh, description. Um, but so there is also a work um, that we submitted to uh, Neurips that deals with, um, and I think that's something I haven't considered at all in my PhD work um, about different ways of uh, changing the distortion method. So you know in in classical information theory you would look at um uh, l2 loss as a as a way to determining your distortion which of course already in pictures is really difficult because once you change the hue just a little bit that's not something you would perceive as to be too different but of course it like incurs a huge l2 loss in mm -hmm. your picture or you know like slight translation or rotation or whatever um And so a lot of people look actually in, you know, what are, you know, more perception uh, motivated uh, distortion measures. Um, and then in this, in this NeurIPS paper that we looked at, um, you know, maybe for a lot of data, when we compress it, human perception is not even the holy grail that we're trying to achieve, but we maybe actually just want to be able to answer all kinds of queries about data in hindsight. And one of the big motivators Uh, for us was looking at satellite data. So when we when we think about satellite data that is being recorded at great spatial and uh, temporal frequency. Um, and of course, because, you know, like satellite data is also a huge security issue for countries. You have huge data centers in all kinds of countries saving satellite data for whatever reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so... And then if you want to if you want to record that over maybe 10 years, it actually ends up kind of being a really big chunk of data. Um, and on top of that, the queries you might have 
in 10 years time about the junk of data you recorded might not actually be um, something that um, you knew upfront so that you maybe didn't, you know, like even if you had a classifier at the time that said, um, you know, the water level was rising at, I don't know, 10 centimeters a year. Maybe today you have a different question, like was there a famine in this village or, you know, um, I don't know, did this city in Toronto burn down in like 2021? Um, anything like that? Like, I mean, I don't know, like I was personally a bit um, fascinated by the idea that we can track like climate change events mm-hmm. or whatever with the sort of framework. Um, and so we started thinking about, okay, we want to actually task centric um, distortion metric um, that would be able to answer all kinds of queries um, that are relevant, but you won't necessarily be able to reconstruct the data itself. So you're not going to be able to look at this satellite picture again, but Realistically speaking, humans don't do that anyway anymore because there's just too much that we're recording. Mm -hmm. But what we want in great detail is to be able to answer questions. Mm. And I think there is sort of, so the the study we did there is very preliminary, preliminary because like from there, you can actually have a range of different other questions. And I think one of which is very interesting is to think like in the satellite example now that satellites are going to change in years right so like the the kind of data that we're recording today is going to be recorded with a certain type of satellite with a certain type of lens with a certain type of i don't know storage device or whatever and it's going to be different ones so there's going to be a distribution shift mm-hmm. coming up and then the question is um the the data that we store is this um so if we're going to store this task-centric data, is this going to actually survive the distribution shift, for example? So I think but it's, I think that's a very like exciting route to go into, discover all the kind of different um, distortion metrics that are out there that are enabled by machine learning. Yeah, it sounds like you're able to kind of, kind of like see a lot of unique applications through this lens of compression and information theory. So it seems like a cool cool area well yeah this is um this has been great so there's two questions uh that i always ask to end the thesis review um <laughs> but uh, yeah before that i just wanted to say that like i really enjoyed reading through this it was really clearly written and um so anyone who's listening yeah i'd encourage you to to read it it's a good entry point if you're familiar with machine learning to start like thinking about how information theory fits in um, but yeah, going back to the beginning of the conversation, so, so Schmidt Huber, he also <laughs> said that, um, compression progress can act is actually potentially an objective for intelligence that like we should seek out things, uh, that we don't know how to compress and then learn how to compress them. So on the subject of objective functions during your PhD, what would you view as what your objective function was? Uh, was it kind of scientific exploration? <laughs> Did you uh, were you trying to compress all of the knowledge into your mind, and then has it changed now? Yeah, I think. I mean, as a PhD student, I think a lot of people feel more the sort of publish or perish vibe, and I think that was true for me too. Um, I think I wish I would have taken more time um, to learn uh, some things in more depth. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, there's sort of a trade-off, of course. And I, I mean, a few things I did learn in great depth. Um, and today I think I, 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 I am a bit more chill and that means actually only things that I think are positive in the sense that I actually think about larger agenda and about impact, but also who I impact with their work. So... When we, like I like compression uh, communication as a problem so much because it reminds me a lot of like sort of Wikipedia and what that has done for people in order you know to get information for themselves and I think sort of what I see now is that we have this enormous need of communicating very high dimensional data with each other and sort of improving this and sort of knowing that there is really sort of an everybody's audience for that work is kind of cool. Um, even, you know, if that turns out not to be true in the end, 
mm -hmm. reality, that's fine. I mean, in terms of like what my actual impact is going to be, um, but mm -hmm. you know, that it has the chance to sort of be impactful um, on that level is kind of a cool idea, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then the last question is, if you could give one piece of advice to a new researcher who's just getting started, and it could be some grand advice, it could be just a useful heuristic. Uh, some people actually say both. They give grand and heuristic, but no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I what I would say um, to PhD student, like on your first week, have the number of a therapist ready and then go to therapy if you need to. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's great advice. And um, thanks so much for doing this. I'm excited to to start following your work. This was kind of a new area for me, so I really enjoyed going through the thesis and thanks for coming on the thesis review. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. <laughs>